If you've got a Bible with you, you might want to turn to Philippians um, and chapter 2, actually to the end of chapter 1. Um, you rem- might remember last week that we began a sort of little mini-series in Philippians. We're, we're not going the whole book uh, word by word, but we are picking out key passages and key themes. Um, I'll just give you a little bit of an introduction, remind you if you weren't here last week, and then we're going to jump into Philippians. Um, mostly we're just going to read through um, quite a chunk of chapter 2. Um, last week, if you remember, I said to you that Paul, the Apostle Paul that is, not Paul down here, he's an Apostle too, but in a different way. Um, Paul had a great affection for the church in Philippi, which he himself had planted back in the day. And at this point that he's writing this letter, he's now suffering. Um, He's in a pretty bad state. He's actually under house arrest in Rome. And he's writing to them to tell them just how thankful he is for them, how thankful he is. And he wants to encourage them as they continue to grow in their faith. Okay. Um, last week in chapter one, we looked at two particular prayers of Paul's. We said we looked at his prayer of thanks for them, how thankful he was for their partnership in the gospel. They had blessed him with a financial gift, and they were also just really keen on reaching out to their community. Paul very much saw them as partners, and he said, "I'm so thankful for that." And his other prayer was for fruitfulness that they didn't settle into their faith, that they didn't kind of just, just start to enjoy life and, and get comfortable, but actually that they pushed on and grew more like Jesus and that the fruit of that was evident in their lives. And actually Paul's encouragement throughout this whole letter to his people, to his church, to Jesus' church, is that we get to be more like Jesus that we get to be more like Jesus. In today's passage, Paul holds up this incredible picture. Literally, he paints it with words. He paints an incredible example of Jesus because Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a Jesus man. It's almost like his life and Jesus, you couldn't really tell the difference. They were almost completely merged together. He lived for Jesus. He worked for Jesus. He preached the gospel of Jesus. He looked to Jesus for all his needs. And even in these difficult, challenging circumstances of which he experienced many, he only looked to Jesus. Let me read you just a section from 2 Corinthians. Don't turn there. Paul describes some of the things that have happened to him in his life as he has gone around trying to preach Jesus. He says, I've been in prison frequently, been flogged severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was pelted with stones, and three times I was shipwrecked and spent a night and a day in the open sea. On on he goes. You might know the story of Peter Pan. Does anybody know what the quote is from Peter Pan when he says, To die, what does he say? Would be an or- thank you, would be an awfully big adventure. To die would be an awfully big adventure. That's Peter Pan's quote. Paul's quote is to live is an awfully big adventure. To live in Christ. Paul says, I am living an incredible adventure. The adventure is Jesus. It's incredible and it's incredibly challenging. And it's Jesus. This is the story that Jesus invites all of us into. And truthfully, if we're not experiencing at least some of the highs and lows of what Paul is describing, perhaps not in that sort of detail, but you never know, then I don't know how fruitful we're really going to be. See, in Paul's life, there's fruit. The Philippian church is the fruit of Paul's ministry. Despite all this suffering, he says, I'm full of joy. I'm full of joy, joy in Jesus and joy for you. And that's living. To live is Jesus. To live is Christ. And to die, well, that's even better. That's what Paul says. And, you know, I love that because when he's challenging us 
through his letters, when he's giving us kind of like, hey, come on, do this, do this, I know that he is actually really living this stuff out himself. He has integrity. His teaching has integrity because he is living this stuff out for real. Do you know the phrase WYSIWYG? What you see is what you get. He's not some kind of armchair general. When I think about armchair generals, this is, uh, this is the person who comes to my mind. Um, general Melchit from Blackadder 4. Have you seen that? Right then, men, off you go into battle. And he sits back at the First World War and he's get, he gets on fine whilst all his men go off onto the front line. I don't believe Paul's anything like that. If anything, I think Paul is much more like Mel Gibson in Braveheart. William Wallace, right on the front line. I'm not sure that this... Um, film was very historically accurate but it's a great story Um, right on the front line suffering in there along with the fellas paying the ultimate sacrifice for what he believes in that's the kind of leader that inspires me that's the kind of leadership I see in Paul and when I read his letter to the Philippians I feel challenged but I'm okay with being challenged because I know he's living it out what's his secret? well his secret is Jesus his secret is Jesus and just at the end of chapter 1, there's one verse, that it was where, slightly where I stopped last week, where he says this, um, chapter 1, verse 27, he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens. He's taught, he spent the, first, the next first 26 verses talking about Jesus, talking about what, how, how he follows Jesus to live his Christ, to die his gain. And then he says, and you guys, by the way, you guys, my encouragement to you, whatever's going on, whatever's going on and a better actually a better translation of this would be this behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ and he talks about the, the, he uses that phrase again in chapter 3 citizens worthy you see Philippi prided itself on being a Roman colony if you lived in Philippi you were offered the honour and the privilege effectively of being a Roman citizen Roman citizenship for those who live there. Paul is talking to them directly and saying, this is not about being a citizen of Rome. This is about being a citizen of heaven. We're not, our primary allegiance is not to Caesar, it's to Jesus. Whatever's going on, Paul says, your example for living is Jesus. It's Jesus in everything. And that leads us really nicely into chapter 2 which we're going to read together. So I've got it up here, or you can follow in your Bible or on your phone. Um, we're going to read right through uh, the first three or four sections. Can you just follow through with me um, as I read, Becca? Thank you. So this is called Imitating Christ's Humility, and I'm going to read it from the uh, New International Version, the NIV Version. It says, Therefore, Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord, 
to the glory of God the Father. That's an incredible chapter and we'll spend most of our time talking about that. But just the last four or five verses, um, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. And as you hold firmly to the word of life, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. It's an incredible passage. There's a man called Gordon Fee. He's a wonderful Canadian theologian. He was part of the guy who um, was part of the team that transla- translated the, the NIV, the, 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 the sort of latest version of the NIV. We, I heard him speak once, and, and he's really into Paul's letters, and particularly this one. This is his speciality. And uh, I heard him speak once, and as he read chapters of it, he just wept. He'd spent his whole life studying this thing. Anyway, he says about this passage, he says, Here is one of Paul's finest hours, which serves both to exalt Christ and to prod the Philippians to emulation. In other words, copying. While reassuring them of Christ's exalted position, including Christ's position over Caesar himself. Now, I tried to summarize this talk into three points. Okay, And this is what I came out with. When I looked at it, I just thought, Do you know, the, the best way to summarize this is just be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. I thought, well, we need to go a bit further than that. So now I've sort of expanded that to be like Jesus with one another. Be like Jesus' servant nature. And be like Jesus and shine in a dark world. So let's take the first point. Be like Jesus with one another. Focusing on the first four verses. You see, what happens to us when we unite our lives with Jesus? The first verse, verse one of this, Paul says, if you've got any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, sharing in the spirit. He has this whole list. How many of you have experienced some either encouragement or comfort or the presence of the spirit or tenderness or compassion as you have come to Jesus? How many of you can can witness to that? Yeah, good. Well, that's all right then. So, Paul isn't saying to them, you haven't got any of this. He's just saying, if you have received or experienced any of this, if, then. If that's been your experience, okay, if connecting with Jesus results in kindness and compassion and encouragement and comfort and good things, then those things, Paul says, are worth emulating. They're worth copying. Verse 2 says, be like-minded and have the same love as Jesus. Make sure that you are one in spirit and united of mind. He is talking about unity. He's talking about being in agreement with one another. Being together in front of God. What does that mean practically? Well, in verses 3 and 4, he unpacks that. He says, look, things to avoid are selfish ambition and vain conceit. In other words, this is not about yourself. This is not about pride in any status or position you might have. He says this is about being humble and valuing others. 
Not looking to your own interests, he says, but to the interests of others. How many people find that challenging? I do, okay? I just like to say I don't find that very easy. It's so easy, isn't it, in our human nature to put ourselves first. I mean, we're living in a society that's all about me. All about me. Consumerism. My needs. My choices. I, I am the product of whatever, my, whatever I choose to be. This is the world that our kids are growing up in now. The whole society. And, and it so stands against the nature of this humble Jesus character that Paul is talking about here. Sometimes Joe and I, you know, we disagree about things. We disagree about things in our marriage. We have different opinions about how we should respond to certain situations. A few people nodding their heads here. It's, most, it's mostly the women, I should know. Um, how we should spend our money. How we should parent our children. Paul's encouragement is to be of one mind. To be together and like-minded, the same as Jesus. That doesn't mean we can't have different opinions, but it does mean that we need to deal with our conflicts with love and grace and peace. And as he suggests, putting our own needs second and the other person's needs first. If we can do that, we'll be okay. In any church congregation, there will be different personalities and people with conflicting opinions and different life experiences. That's to be expected. You may disagree with others in this church community about all kinds of things. How to respond to situations, how to spend your money, how to parent your children, how to interpret what the Bible's saying about this, that, and the other. But Paul's encouragement to the Philippian church and to us is to be of one mind. I don't know how many times I have heard stories of church communities that have literally split. They have literally divided, fallen out over a particular issue or problem. That lack of unity. It just disintegrates things. Maybe you've been part of something like that. It's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Um, I'm really impressed with this guy at the minute, Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He is saying consistently, I mean, let's just be real about this. The Church of England are not in an easy position. And yet all I'm hearing Welby say is the most important thing is not that we disagree. The most important thing is that we love each other despite the fact that we disagree. That's what I'm hearing Welby say. I'm, some of those church people, I'm hearing them not respond to that. But then I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. But the most important thing is that we love one another despite having disagreements. Because otherwise, we lose unity. And that's what Paul's appealing to here. Now, the church in Philippi wasn't severely divided, but there were some people who were having a very public disagreement. In chapter 4, he names them. Chapter 4, verse 2, he says, I plead with Euodia and Syntyche, I can't even say her name, two of the female leaders there, to, ha- to be of the same mind in the Lord. And so his encouragement is, we need to put our own issues aside and lay down our own needs in favour of other people. That is what Christian maturity, Christian faith, following Jesus, that's what it looks like. It looks like selfless serving and thinking of others before ourselves. And that can be a real challenge. But the great news, Paul says, is that we have an incredible role model. We have an incredible role model who can do this and who can show us how to do it, and that is Jesus. And then you get onto this section in um, verses 5 to uh, 8 and on a bit further about Jesus and the servant nature of Jesus. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. But rather he made himself nothing and took on the nature of a servant. 
So he's already challenged us to think about our attitude to others. And now he says, how is this possible? Well, it's possible by copying Jesus. And he paints this wonderful expressive picture of Jesus. It's poetic the way it's written. Some people call this chapter, this section, the hymn of Christ. Some people think it's an early hymn that Paul wrote. I don't know if that's true or not. uh, But it does beautifully express and capture the story of who Jesus was and his nature. You see, in verse 6, it says that Jesus was God in nature and form, but that he didn't use that equal status he had with God to his own advantage. He didn't pursue glory or power or all the things that that status might afford. He didn't fight for position or recognition. He didn't try and outdo his old man. In fact, he did the absolute opposite and made himself nothing. And the translation, I really undenied about this. The translation in the NIV that I read earlier is really weak. A better translation is that he emptied himself. He emptied himself. It sounds like he went for a wee, but that's not what he meant. He emptied himself to take on the form or nature of a servant. And there's a word for this, and it's called kenosis. And that comes from the Greek word. And that's given rise to a whole stream of theology about the nature of exactly who Jesus really is. And just bear with me for one minute while I just take a, take a minute to explain what I mean because I think it's really powerful. I remember learning this on my theology course and it absolutely blew me away. You see, for a couple of thousand years before Jesus, the Jews believed in one God. They were monotheistic. Unlike all of their neighbours, neighbouring countries, neighbouring um, states, uh, who all had many, many multiple gods, the Jews had one God. Yahweh, Jehovah, I am, the God of the Old Testament. Then Jesus comes along and John says at the beginning of John, the word became flesh. Now Jesus, who is God, comes down and becomes man and yet he's still God. How does that work? For three centuries after Jesus was around, the church was still fighting and arguing and trying to figure out what that actually meant and what it looked like. How does this work? How could it be possible, they said, that Jesus was both 100% God and 100% human? That just doesn't seem possible. How, how are we going there's to... There's a whole raft of theology. They call it Christology. The study of who Jesus is. And there's two key arguments. One is, well, Jesus was a God who came to earth and stayed on earth, but actually he never was fully human. He always was just God on earth. A bit like someone you read these ancient stories about Zeus or somebody coming down to earth and interacting with humans. Okay? The problem with that argument is that if that were true, Jesus couldn't really identify with us in our human nature and our suffering. He wouldn't have actually become flesh. And yet we know that he did. So that can't work. So the, the opposing argument, on the other hand, says, well, hang on a minute, maybe it was just that he was a very special man and he wasn't God at all. He was a prophet. He was a teacher. He was a holy man, yes, but not fully God. Not a God, just a very good man. But that doesn't work either because if that's the case, then his death has no eternal significance. He was just some other prophet who died and got forgotten about. So neither of those is true. So another argument could be that he started as one and changed into the other. He started as God But when he came to earth, he kind of emptied himself or put aside his godness, all his god qualities. He became became human and he was just human, no longer God. But for the reasons I just said, that doesn't work because if he was just human, 
then his death doesn't have a significance. There's no big deal about this story. And in 412, a guy called Cyril of Alexandria, the Bishop of Alexandria where Paul used to live, articulated a theological position based on this passage that we're reading today called kenosis. He said, this is how I think it works. Okay? He said, Jesus, it doesn't say in this passage that Jesus became a servant. It says he took on the nature of a servant. He took on the form of a servant. It doesn't say he stopped existing in his God form. It it says he chose to make himself nothing. He chose to lay aside the status and the rights afforded to him as the Son of God and instead take on the nature of a servant in the likeness of men, looking like men, being a man. Now I can't... It's a pretty tough thing to get your head around here's an example it's not a perfect example but it's, a, it's an example that's a little bit closer to home for us that I think might help to explain you know Prince William right you know who he is future king of England he has all the status and all the wealth and all the power and all the position and the credibility associated with that identity he's a royal prince and yet he chooses to let's just for the sake of argument, use the phrase empty himself of that status and just do a job that's basically being a regular helicopter pilot over in uh, Norfolk for the, for the air ambulance now I watched a video about him recently and he's just one of the guys he doesn't want to be treated any differently just because he chooses to be a helicopter pilot to be one of us or one of them I'm not a helicopter pilot but you know what I mean it doesn't change fundamentally his identity or his royal status He is still the future king of England and yet he has chosen to lay that status aside for the purposes of doing a regular job and being with regular people. Do you get me? It's not a perfect example. He could demand that that team treats him like a royal prince but he'd probably get laughed at. (laughs) And I watch this thing and they're just joking with each other the same as everybody would. It's not a perfect example, but it's the closest I could get to. Tom Wright says this, The point of verse 6 is that Jesus was indeed already equal with God. Somehow Paul is saying that Jesus already existed even before he came a human being, in verse 7, but the decision to become human and to go all the way along the road of obedience, obedience to the divine plan of salvation, yes, all the way to the cross, that decision was not a decision to stop being divine. It was a decision about what it really means to be divine. About what it really means to be divine. No other God in history, God in in inverted commas, would make that decision. Why would you make that decision to give up all your status? And yet, Paul says this is what Jesus did. In 2 Corinthians, he says, though he was rich, Jesus that that means, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. And Paul's encouragement to the church and to us is to look at Jesus as a picture of true spiritual progress. His example is not a self-grandizing struggle for supremacy. He is not after status and position. His is a deep love for God and for his neighbor, shown in acts of service for others. Do you want to know if you're growing in your faith? Have a think about how that looks for other people. What are you doing? What are we doing? How much are we putting our own needs second? I'm not talking about a health, a, a, an unhealthy or dysfunctional, you know, complete suppression of our own needs, but I'm talking about a lifestyle that puts others first, copying Jesus' example. 
See, I reckon that Jesus' people should be the most loving, the most humble, the most willing to serve others on this planet. So consequently, I think the Jesus people around here need to be the most loving, the most humble, and the most willing to serve others in Winchester and the surrounding districts, or in your community, or your town, wherever you live, in your workplace. Like Robin was saying, are you prepared to pray for somebody and look stupid in case it doesn't work, or in case they laugh at you? Are we prepared to do that? For Jesus, ultimately, this meant death. And not just any old death either, crucifixion, which was believed to be the worst form of execution. Gordon Fee, who I quoted at the beginning, says, Here is the closest thing to Christology that one finds in Paul. And here again, we see why the scandal of the cross was so central to Paul's understanding of everything Christian. Because in pouring himself out, as Jesus did, and humbling himself to death on a cross, Jesus has revealed the character of God himself. One other quote from Tom Wright. When you look at the incarnate Son of God dying on the cross, the most powerful thought you should think is, this is the true meaning of who God is. The true meaning of who God is. And if we want to grow in godly character, that means us, like him, being ready to lay aside any ideas that we might get about status and about self-importance and basically die to ourselves. After all, that's what Jesus instructed his disciples to do, isn't it? If you, it says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself and take up your cross. Not in a kind of, oh, we all have our crosses to bear kind of way. But in a, hey, wow, Jesus did this for me. And he wants me to do this for others kind of way. And don't f- forget there's a glorious future promised. There's a glorious future for Jesus, which Paul talks about. There he says, God exalted him to the highest place. He's given him the name above every name. Paul quotes Isaiah, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. He's just reminding the Jewish believers that, you know, th- yes, this, this Jesus who emptied himself and took on the nature of a servant is also and was also exalted back in heaven and is the Lord of heaven and earth. To the glory of God the Father. He's gone full circle. And in other places, Paul teaches that we also, when we put our faith in him, when we give our yes to Jesus, then our whole nature changes as well, and we are up there sitting at his right hand. That's what it says. Our future is assured, and it's glorious. One day, we're not just going to worship down here for half an hour like we love to on a Sunday morning. We're going to worship forever in heaven with all the angels and all the earth, bowing the knee in worship to Jesus. That's what Paul says. Until then, we just get to practice and to enjoy it. And to live our lives submitted to him, walking with him and being Jesus to others. I wonder if we're able to echo Paul when he says, for me to live is Christ. I wonder, how, I wonder where the boundary is for us, me and Jesus. How much of him is in me. And so we need to be like Jesus and we need to light up the world. That's my th- final point. You know, he says in verse 16 or verse 15, he says, if you do this, then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. When we live this stuff out in our everyday lives, Paul says we shine like stars in the sky. There's a kid's song that we sing upstairs and sometimes in the all-age service. It goes, shine, woo, from the inside out, that the world will see you live in me. I once wrote a song called I Want to Be a Light in the World. It's not a very good song. But the... But the but the sentiment is right. 
I didn't say that. It's not one of my best ones. <laughs> when, we in, when we imitate Jesus' humility and we line up with his character like this, it's so radically countercultural that it makes a massive difference. That's what the people who are coming to our Christmas fair are noticing. That lady, she said, I mean, that lady, she's had a really rough life and is still having a really rough life. Some really tough relationship things going on around her home and family. And yet she came here and she said, I have never been, this is the best event I have ever been to. The people who come and sell their stuff at the craft store here, they don't make that much money, but they come anyway because they love the atmosphere. They just said, oh, we don't mind about, you know, we don't mind about making money. We just love the atmosphere here. People are noticing. People notice when we do this stuff. They notice our selflessness. They notice our humility. They notice, and that's how we shine like stars. Are we going to be known as the people who are trying to get the career sorted and the money and pay off the mortgage and just make enough to retire on? Or are we going to be known as the people who go out of their way to light up dark places, to help others, to be humble, to welcome a stranger, to act in the opposite spirit? People who aren't driven by fear and insecurity, but people who know that we're, much, we're part of a much, much bigger story. People who are so passionate about Jesus that we're ready to literally lay down our whole lives for the sake of others. But Nigel, you just don't know how difficult things are for me. It's just as much as I can do to drag myself out of bed and into church on a Sunday and, and, and worship a bit. I just need the warmth and the love of this community to feel better about who I am. All of those things may be true. That's sort of things I've heard in the, in the last um, few weeks and months. All of those may be true, and you're right, I don't know how difficult things are. But I do know that however hard they are, Jesus knows, and he's been there, and his big arms are around you. He can hold you, and he can love you. He can do a better job of it than I can or anybody here can, although we'll have a go. And that when we allow him to do that, he also gives us the grace we need to look beyond ourselves. And so the challenge of today is, like Jesus, let's look beyond ourselves. Let's shine like stars, as individuals and as a church. Let's make such an impact. Now, you know, we've talked about the building a lot lately. It's really just so that we can better welcome guests so that we can better shine like stars and better show people the love of Jesus. That's really what it's for. And the other thing, just that one practical outworking of this, just as I finish, is that um, you know, when people come here, part of the deal is we make them feel welcome. So we're all here, we're all enjoying ourselves this morning. And, and you know, we have these teams, getting involved teams. You can pick up a flyer like this. And just one of the ways, just one of the ways that we could do this is by simply serving here to make this place the kind of place where people feel welcome we haven't done a big focus on this stuff of late because we're, we've been thinking about looking out we've been thinking about the building but the truth is we also need the teams here you know the, the cafe teams and the children's teams and the welcome teams we need all sorts of teams to make this thing happen I, I kind of think of it like I think of my family you know I, I, I don't my, my child, the, the sole purpose of my children's aim in life isn't to be a good family the family is meant to be a secure place um, they need to go out there and, and, and impact the world but if all of us in our home don't work together to tidy up and just do the things that are a few parents are nodding their heads with me <laughs> you know, do the things that are required then it doesn't function very well and I, I think of our in church stuff like, a bit like that you know, 
there's good jobs and there's bad jobs, you know. You can lead the worship or you can clean the toilets. Somebody's got to do them all. And the pay's the same anyway. But, you, you know, <laughs> the pay's the same. <laughs> you laugh then. The pay's the same because it's nothing down here, but it's everything up there, okay? Sometimes it's hard to commit to these things. But this is just one way of working out practically what, um, what I think Jesus is talking about, what Paul is talking about here. When he says, take on the nature of a servant. Don't be about yourself. Be about what you can do for others. We're not, I heard somebody say this week, this is not my quote, we're not about completing tasks, we're about completing people. If we're part of a family and there's an opportunity to serve and there's an opportunity to grow in humility, then that's about completing us as people. Not just getting the job done in church. I mean, you know, know, I'm not too stressed. The job will happen. You know, ultimately people will come here and they will figure out if we don't have enough people on the team somebody will will volunteer I don't want to be the sort of guy who's at the front twisting people's arms I just want us to be the kind of people who are yeah what needs doing sure I'll do it and we do it without even anybody seeing you know I sometimes come through church I can't tell that story it doesn't matter I just thought I was going to big myself up then I don't want to do that Um, that's that's me done last thing we really really uh, Jez already talked about the Christmas fair there's one opportunity in the new year, we really do think that it's the right thing to start an evening service here. Okay, We want to kick off an evening service. It will basically be very similar in, in content to what we do. The style might be a little bit different. We might change the lights or the setup. But basically, it will be similar talk, similar worship. We just feel that it's right. It's the right time to make more spaces and opportunities for more people to connect with Jesus. The challenge of that is that we're going to need to double our teams so in order to make an evening service happen, we're going to need twice as many people on our teams. Okay? So if you aren't involved in any way and you'd like to be, particularly if you're new, but it doesn't really matter whether you're new or old, get stuck in. Come and get involved. If that's a vision that you want to buy into, making more opportunities for us as a church to shine like stars and welcome guests and show people the, the love of Jesus and grow in the way that we humbly serve one another then that would just be a that's one way of working it out there are other ways too should we stand together